Welcome to the Jesus and Everybody podcast, the show where we talk to everybody about the intersection of Jesus and their life story. My name is Andrew Ironside, and thank you for joining us for the episode today. Our show this week features one of the most powerful interviews I think we will ever hear on this show. Our guest today is Linda Martin. Linda is the mom of our good friend, Rochelle, and shares very powerfully, very beautifully, very honestly, her story, her experience as an Ojukri woman, a Christian, someone who has lived through personal trauma as well as experienced the communal trauma that have faced so many from the Indigenous peoples of Canada. I have a lot to learn on this issue. I think we all do. And Linda really takes us on a journey today. This episode is obviously a lot longer than normal. And there's a reason for it as you hear, just giving space to, to hear her journey, some of her story. It will move you and inspire you and bring you to tears. Linda did ask that I put a disclaimer into the show, letting you know that she does speak about her own personal trauma and that that might be a trigger for some people. And so if that's where you're at, I would caution you about listening to this show uh, because it may be a trigger for you with your own trauma. But Linda shares so honestly because as in her own words, she says this is part of her story of coming to faith, the trauma that she's experienced. And we're just so grateful. Um, we're honored to have her share as she did today. And so settle in. Um, this is a, a serious topic and one that we're really just beginning to unpack, but it begins with stories one at a time like this. And so without further ado, as part of the Jesus and Everybody podcast, this is Linda Martin. Welcome, Linda, to the Jesus and Everybody podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we're very honored to have you here today and to share some of your story. As you know, the podcast is about discussing with our guests the intersection between Jesus and their life story. And part of that, obviously, is our childhood and our family experience. And I wonder if you could start by sharing with us about your upbringing, Linda, and where Jesus first connected to your story. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Andrew. I, I'm happy to be here. So to answer your question about, uh, about my childhood and how I came to know of God, I am um, an Ojibwe Cree. That's my, I'm an Aboriginal here in Canada. And I'm, my tribal background is Ojibwe Cree. And we live in Northern Ontario, the political region where we, where we live in is called Nishinaabeyaski Nation. And there's uh, 49 native communities, Aboriginal communities in this political region of governance. And it's headed by our own people and they represent us to the federal government on many issues about, about us. So this Nishinaabeyaski nation has 49 communities and the uh, area is like uh, one, uh, two thirds 
of the Ontario, the province Ontario, two thirds of that is what we as Aboriginal people know as Anishinaabe Eski Nation. It goes, it comes all the way down to Chaplow and goes all the way east to the Quebec border and to the west, all the way to the Manitoba border. Mm. And the official languages for our area is English. And on the government document, it says that English. And then the, the Crees, there's many different kinds of Crees. I'm uh, from the Severn River tribe. Uh, and we are called, our language group is called like that because our communities, my people, my extended family for generations, my great grandfather, my great grandmother, and their parents lived in these, uh, what we call hunting areas, ancestral hunting areas. We had borders that we understood in our culture. So as a Severn Cree tribe, we always lived on the shores of um, a Severn River that goes all the way to the Hudson's Bay. And that's why we're called the, uh, that's my, the background of my tribe and the name of my tribe and then my language. Mm. But then you get all these other different kinds of Crees. There's a mixture of Ojibwe's who are south of us, close to the um, uh, Minnesota border. The Ojibwe's go right through that area. And so there's an area of us that is a mixture of both tribes and we're known as the Ojibwe Crees. OG Crees for short. So I grew up on the Severn, on the shores of the Severn River. I lived with my immediate family, my grandparents, and then my great grandmother. So one of the tribal traditions we have is to live in, as extended families for survival mm. because there's a harsh environment where we, uh, <laughs> in, in where we lived. The winters were long and cold, so we needed each other to survive the long winters for both, you know, hunting for food. But then in the uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, in my grandparents' time, the missionaries started coming into our area and talk to my grandparents and others in that age group in that time and introduced God, teaching of God, of Jesus to us. And my grandparents became really strong believers in that way. So I grew up, I grew up knowing about God or hearing about God I grew up knowing that there was a God, but the, the knowledge of God or knowing of God never became a personal experience for me. But we were taught certain ways because of our grandparents, their faith in God. And so some of those teachings were passed down to us teachings such as you know to do what is right to be honest and to help 
others and to be kind. That's kind of how their faith lived out to us children. And so you grew up knowing about learning to live life in that way. Uh, but like I said, it wasn't like a personal experience, even that I knew about God. It was not, a, it did not become a personal experience to me until much, much later as a young woman. And can you share about that journey? What as a young woman led you to exploring your own faith? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I should say is that, or I need, I need to share is that we are a colonized people group. Uh, we have been colonized by the uh, settlers, European settlers, you know, came to set up their country, their ways in this continent and this part of the continent their governments. So I did not go to school until I was nine years old. And that's because we've always lived in the trap lines of my dad's dad, my grandfather on my dad's side. We lived under a trap line because years before that, the original community extended uh, a village of extended families that we connected with as, as kind of our tradition, tribal tradition, uh, started the community uh, in our area and people started settling there on a year round basis instead of moving, uh, living like a seasonal, seasonal lifestyle seasonal lifestyle, meaning that we would move, we would have a winter camp, we would have a summer camp, we'd have spring camp. And we followed the seasons and the diet, the diet for us was what was available and what was plenty in that season. Moose, like in the winter time, fish mm -hmm. in the summertime, you know. So other extended families stayed and started a settle, a permanent settlement and they called it Michigan, Michigan Sagaganik. And today it's called Michigan Lake. And then the government came and began to register the people in that community, began to register them with the government. And once you get registered with the federal government as a native person, uh, it's like your rights and who you have, we had, and who we had before, like in our traditional ways of living to be free and follow our traditions, whether it's hunting, seasonal hunting or seasonal lifestyle, we were not permitted to live in that way anymore. We had to be in one place. And uh, so we lost a lot of our traditional way of living. We lost a lot of our traditions. And uh, so Michigan Lake then became a registered community to the federal government. And so the people that the families that were there had to be there and they could not live out their traditional way of life 
as before where so for my own immediate family the extended my extended family there's five of us five families five families and probably about 30 of us that includes grandparents and uncles and my mom's siblings and cousins and we still lived off the traditional camp of one of my grandparents but in 1976 the government came and uh, registered our community. And then once we were registered with the federal government, certain policies that they had for Aboriginal people fell in place for us. And one of those policies was that the children needed to go to school. And so in 1976, I was sent away to high school, uh, to to high school in Sault Ste. Marie. (laughs) Hmm. all the way from my little community called Muskrat Dam on the Severn River, which is literally like thousands of miles. I'll talk in miles Mm -hmm. (laughs) north of St. Marie. So I got sent away for school. And that in itself was a very traumatic experience because up to that time, my first language was my, my tribal language, Severn Cree. And that's all I spoke. And uh, even though years before that, when I was sent away, I, uh, the government came to our village and offered these uh, programs to the children already, you know, that we needed to learn the English language, that we needed to go to school. And so we did. And I was nine when that started. And so it wasn't like a, a regular program. It was more like a few months at a time, you know, we would do schoolwork, you know, and it, I guess each year then I progressed to the next, next grade. And uh, so it wasn't until when 76 and I got sent away for high school. So up until that time, even though I learned how to read in the English line in English, I learned how to write in English in those times that I was uh, learning. I never had to speak the language as a way of communication. And so that became a really, a really difficult thing for me when I realized that, you know, in high school, I had to use the language as a way of communicating. And that was really hard for me. And then also I boarded with a non-native, uh, non-Aboriginal family. And in that time, I shared a bedroom with the daughter of the family that I stayed with. And the, um, that was the first time I had my own bed. And I was in my late th- teens. I back home then when I thought about it, we always slept on the ground. And if we had a cabin, we slept on the floor. Right on the ground with no... No, no, no. no We'd have our bedding, kind of a bedding. And if you ask me what it was, I don't know because I don't remember. But we had our blankets and stuff like that. I know that later on, it was like in the wintertime, we would just pile our winter jackets on top of ourselves on top of what was supposed to be our blankets too. Because the winter's... Nights were cold and long, very long. But anyway, so 
I uh, didn't have to speak the language and the culture in itself, living with a non-native family, non-Aboriginal family, going to a high school that just all native and there's only about, there's only a few of us, I think a handful of us native Aboriginal students in this high school. All those were very traumatic for me, this little Aboriginal girl. So I went for two years and uh, but those two years that I went, I didn't do very well. I didn't understand the system, the semester system, the classroom system. I would get lost in the hallways and be late for my classes. And I didn't know how to do homework. And I got late with my assignments. So I didn't pass all my courses each semester. But I always like to learn. I was, I was learning that. I liked learning. I liked reading. So when I was about after second year, going, trying to go hang out for third year, I dropped out. I quit, I quit high school, went back home, decided I'll just work at home. And I did that. And, uh, but I was always wanting to learn. I, I loved learning. So when I was about 21, I decided to go back to school as a mature student. And I applied for a post-secondary program as a mature student and I got accepted. And so I left my community again, but this time kind of my own choice instead of first time was I got sent out. And so this time I was determined that I would study and that I would learn and I would pass. But you know, after the first month or two, I, I got homesick again. I wanted to go home. I missed my community. I missed my, I missed my family. And I started making friends, but they were not good friends. I didn't make good choices. And so one night I was hanging out with my friend and she was with her friends who were drinking. And so I got involved, I, I stayed, I stayed there, stayed with my friend. And then when, they, when we were done, when they were done, everybody said, no, you know what, let's go over here, you know, to someone's house. And so I said, yeah, okay. And so we all got out and, and I realized when I got into a vehicle that my friend was not with me. And I was with people that I didn't know. But then I thought, oh, you know, that's okay. We're all going to the same place. But, um, you know, I noticed that we were going in a different direction than from what I thought. So I said, you know what, we're going the wrong way. And uh, the driver was a man I didn't know. Uh, you know, just just said to me, you know, just said, shut up, you know, just to shut up. And, and all of a sudden I'm going, what? And when I looked over and I saw his face, it just frightened me. Hmm. And then I realized that I'm in trouble, you know, I'm in trouble. And he just kept driving. 
And um, so that there was another girl behind me in the back seat and I was thinking, okay, this is, you know, this is not good. I was scared. I was scared. What do I do? We got to a place where he wanted to take us and he ordered us to get out. And as we were getting out, all of a sudden I sensed a girl behind me running and I wanted to run to you, but I got caught and I got taken in the, and he dragged me. So that night when I realized that I probably will die that night, I probably will die tonight and that nobody will know what happened to me. Nobody will ever know what happened to me because I had no idea where I was, you know, where I had been taken. And uh, I'm sitting there resigning to the fact that I could die. And uh, I'm sitting there and over, over on my right was a small window. And as I looked up and through that window, I saw this very bright star. It's the morning star. Uh, now I know it's a morning star. I saw a big bright star. And, as, and when I saw that star, memories of my childhood, of my grandmother telling us stories about Jesus, you know, stories about how Jesus can help you when you're in trouble. And so those memories just came flooding into my mind. That star triggered those memories. Because at night, when I was a child, it would be either out in the tent or outside in the dark as we're sleeping, uh, getting to sleep, that my grandma would be telling us those stories. So I cry, I called out, I cried out to God, and I, I said, God, if you are real, can you save me? And uh, I believe that God heard my cry that night. God allowed me to survive that night. I've had to uh, live through the impact of trauma from that experience. Uh, so the next few days, now, I, today, I, my husband and I are in a counseling ministry. We do counseling and we teach on topics that uh, my people group struggle with, topics such as grief and trauma and abuse. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand what was happening, what, what was happening to me those first few days after that abduction after that night because the first few days when I got home I was very uh, hypervigilant hypervigilant meaning that I was always looking behind my back thinking someone's gonna take me again someone's gonna hurt me again 
the time, hypervigilance. At that time, I didn't know what it was. All I knew was that I had so much fear and anxiety. Um, and today I understand that's one of the initial impacts of a, a traumatic experience to be hypervigilant. Wow. Have hypervigilance. And then the next few days, also, my emotions were so strong, but very irrational, coming and going, coming and going. I remember one night, there was so much anger, there was so much anger in me, angry at what just happened to me, I, angry that I've lost this opportunity for, uh, to get further education angry that I went out that night, angry that I needed friends, angry at myself for being homesick and wanting friendships. And I was angry at this man who did this to me, at this person who did this to me. And as I'm wrestling with that anger, just anger just in a strong powerful emotion. Again, today I understand initial emotional impact from a traumatic experience is very, are very intense and, and very powerful. And that's exactly what I was experiencing those days, those first few days, but I did not understand. All I knew was that I'm going crazy or I, this is uh, getting out of control. So that night and struggling with anger, all these thoughts come. And then all of a sudden, I, I remembered my dad. I thought of my dad. And I said, and I said, you know, I was struggling with so much anger. And one of the things I was saying to myself was, if man is capable of such evil, then I will hate man. And then when I thought that, the memory of my dad came. I was like, no, my dad is a gentleman. Hmm. And that helped me to bring a balance of my sense and understanding of man. Today, again, I understand the initial impact of trauma is what we call a black and white thinking. Black and white thinking, meaning that it's easy to say it's all those people are not good. Instead of understanding, oh, there are some good people, there are some bad people. So my understanding became, yes, there are some evil men out there, but there are also some really good men out there that had to become part of my healing journey. And then another night was uh, just emotions of shame, of shame, waves of it that came. And then um, one night again, I'm crying with these waves of shame came. Uh, it was like Jesus came. It was like Jesus came to me and he said, 
I understand how you feel. I understand how you're feeling. I too have felt shame. I too have been stripped in front of people. And when I sensed that, it was like the shame, the grip that the shame had on me, it was just like, it was like, it, it, it left. And uh, as the days, as the days went on, in two weeks and then two months, I suppressed all that impact. I suppressed it. And uh, I tried to pretend to go on and live as normal as I can and not remember those experiences that I had called out to God that night and that he answered me and that I had sense of Jesus coming and saying, you know, I understand. But a few weeks or uh, a few months later, a month or two later, it was like God came again. And it was like, he said, okay, okay, Linda, I saved you. I saved you from that night. What are you going to do? And I was like, okay, God. That was my response. Okay, God, mm-hmm. I'll follow you. I guess I was surrendering to God. I said, I don't care if you <laughs> send me away as a missionary. I will follow you. Thank you for sharing so honestly and being so vulnerable there linda that's just unimaginable what you have experienced and just want to recognize that before we continue that um the thing about it is that my encounter with jesus is through that experience yeah. i'm at a place in my journey that I know this happens to a lot of women I often think I'm one of the ones that survived but many right. have not survived I mentioned that I um, repressed the impact of trauma I repressed the impact of trauma and I, and I actually succeeded to, in some ways, in, in that life became normal to me in some sense. 
And also during that time, the first two, three years after surrendering to God, God became so real to me. God, God became so real to me and his word, scripture became so real to me. I went home from that experience, went back to my community and I struggled with a depression. And then psychological, literally, I was in psychological pain. But I had surrendered to God by that time. And so I was just clinging to God at that time to survive. It was a kind of a day-to-day living. That's how hard it was emotionally, psychologically to move forward, to move on from what happened to me. But I had this understanding that God was able to help you. God was, can help you. That was the teaching I got. And so I clung to that. And I, as I read the scriptures and I couldn't read too much because it was just hard for, uh, I, it was just hard for me to spend a lot of time reading, but I did read and uh, scripture became really real on a day-to-day, daily basis. One of the things that I experienced during that time was I would read I would read the scriptures and then there would be scripture that would become so real and so meaningful for that day. And for that day, that's what carried me. The next day, it would be another passage. You know, scripture passages like underneath are his everlasting arms. At those times, I felt like I could fall. And if I allowed myself to fall, I wouldn't be able to get up again. And that verse told me that if I fell, you know, God, God was able to hold me up. And so one day that would encourage me. Another day would be a different verse. Verses like, you know, suffering is for a season. That I will get better. And I remember one day becoming so afraid. What if I ran out of verses? What if I ran out of scripture and what's going to happen to me? You know, time it was like God was leading me day by day with a different, a new verse each day. And so all of a sudden it just frightened me. What if I run out of uh, scripture, but that never happened. (laughs) Now I know that can never happen right but I was just starting my walk my journey with Jesus and I was just and I had no teaching no one was helping me walking beside me so I repressed the impact of trauma and got better to some level and able to carry on met my husband and moved down to Southern Ontario. Got married, had my first baby, all within first year. One day during that time, after we had our first child, we were going out for dinner 
And as we walked into this restaurant, all of a sudden this fear just came over me and I could not go beyond the doorway. The fear that came immobilized me. And I, and I could not understand what just happened to me. I said to my husband, you know, we gotta go, we have to go. And we left. And that was the beginning of a journey of what I know now was a panic disorder, an anxiety disorder. I know now what I had that day was a panic attack. Today in my work, I understand that any unresolved trauma that one carries, it does not matter how many years back, if that trauma is unresolved, it can affect you in the present in this way, in the way in how it affected me. Any unresolved trauma can be triggered by any present day stresses, such as getting married, moving, having a new job, your first child. And on a scale of one to 10, those are a nine and a 10 life experiences mm. that have the ability to trigger the unresolved trauma that one carries. I understand that now. I've learned that. And, but at that time, I had no idea. All I thought was, I am going crazy. I had no teaching to recognize and understand my emotions. And anytime my emotions were strong and, and there are a lot of experiences that I had that caused me to have uh, a strong emotional reaction or experiences. And so anytime I had those, I was like, oh, I'm going, you know, I must be going crazy, right? Um, I had no understanding uh, it, what was happening to me. So that evening, walking into that restaurant and being unable to go into this open space, into this big room with people, triggered my panic that was rooted to the unresolved trauma I, I carried. So that began my journey of many years of understanding what happened to me and uh, beginning to heal, to heal. And all through those years, it was my faith. It was my faith in Jesus that carried me. In total, probably with my anxiety, and with that depression, probably seven, eight years of that struggle one of the things I think I needed to learn and understand is that God is the same God in the light and in the darkness. He is the same. He doesn't change. When he says that he'll be faithful, he is faithful. Thank you, Linda, for sharing 
Mm-hmm. All, all of this is as is very powerful what you've said today um mm-hmm. you have shared a lot of your personal trauma and the mm-hmm. it sounds a lot like a very real and honest recognition of the complexity of trauma and of healing and of you know you said many times that god was there and he was present and you cried out to him and also you didn't feel him at times and Mm-hmm. And you had counseling and, and, yeah. you know, I, I wonder if there are even those listening who have experienced trauma of their own, many have, and mm-hmm. I hope that they might be uh, encouraged to hear that they are not alone in this and that mm-hmm. there are no simple answers that God is present. And that also mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's easy. And it does mean that he's faithful mm-hmm. and that counseling is, Mm-hmm. so good and uh, and mm-hmm. that it's a journey um so thank you for sharing honestly about that i did want to segue a little bit into um and I, and I hesitate to move just from your story because of how significant it is and i don't want to seem as though we're, we're going too quickly past that but mm-hmm. i think on a larger scale many canadians now are learning more more mm-hmm. light is being shed about the history of the treatment of indigenous peoples in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that word trauma is one that certainly on a larger scale mm-hmm. has uh, come to the forefront of many, many people's experiences and communities, uh, families ripped apart. We know of residential schools, but I think mm-hmm. if we're honest, I'll be honest, I, I still know very little mm-hmm. about this, but that word trauma is one that has come uh, to my ears many times. And, just you know your own experience speaks to this um and on a larger scale um this is a reality for so many of your people and i just wondered if you would speak to that idea specifically because this podcast is about faith this is kind of a hard question but i know that many people today want to learn more about this but as they're learning there seems to be a real connection with the church being at fault in this mm-hmm. as well as the government in mm-hmm. in the tra- in the trauma caused to so many families and communities mm-hmm. and i know a common objection people might be listening and hearing your story and they may be confused because they i know would be deeply moved by all that you've shared and yet might also ask how can you follow jesus when mm-hmm. as you, in your own words you said he there was colonization, you know, and those mm-hmm. colonizers were often Christian and did such pain and trauma. So how, how do you reconcile your own faith in Jesus with this reality? Mm-hmm. I think one of the main things for me that's helped me was to come to a place of understanding that It was man in his fallenness. You know, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world and humanity can cause such such horrendous things to others. And uh, I think for me, coming to an understanding that it was man who did this to us. 
and that it was not God. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but before you shared in your anger and, and hatred of the man that was present that night in the car, mm-hmm. and yet the thought of your father redeeming that story in a way and, and reminding you or teaching you that there is hope, there is darkness, but there is light. Mm-hmm. I'll let you say it in your words, but it sounds to me like even as you consider the horrific things done by man, by people mm-hmm. to one another, there is another example who is still the light. Does that resonate with you? Yes. Yes. And that's what I was saying. And I think I had to come to that understanding personally that it was not God that you know, that did these things to us. It was man. You know, the churches were such a big part of the uh, systemic colonization that happened with my people in Canada, here in Canada. The churches were in partnership with the federal government, you know, to run these uh, residential schools and residential schools were uh, meant to, there's a phrase or a cult that we use in, in, our, in our communities, in our teaching, you know, how the prime minister at that time said, you know, we're gonna do this because we wanna take the Indian out of the Indian. They're talking about our children that they were taken. Mm. And they intentionally took them as young as possible. Some of our children were four years old, five and six usually. And uh, these children would be in these schools for the next seven to 10 years. They were taken away from their families, from their villages during the crucial years of their development you know, the middle childhood school years, uh, years like between seven, seven, eight, nine, six, seven, eight, nine. In modern psychology, they would consider that that's the, the development of the child, the moral development of the child, you know, moral in the sense that they are taught to know what is right and what is wrong. And, uh, where they belong, you know, how they are connected to their families, you know, through experiences of family. But it was during those years that many of our children were taken away. And to some level that's saying to uh, take the Indian out of the Indian came to be true because many of my people, many of us have lost our traditions, our culture. But the, the beautiful thing right now today in the present is that many of us are, are on a journey of reclaiming what, we, what we've lost and learning about ourselves. 
and reclaiming some of our traditions that mm -hmm. we've lost. You know, I get to see uh, the younger generation, you know, begin to participate and become part of that reclaiming for our people. But it was those kinds of experiences that because the church was such a big part of, uh, of that, of what happened to my people, the church was such a big part of that, that many of my people have turned away from the teachings of Jesus. Many of my people have, many of our young men in our tribal area have turned away from the teachings of Jesus because of their experience of church and because of, like it's, a, it's like a, we were disillusioned about God. We became disillusioned about or confused about who God is and about God because of the way the churches treated us. And part of our healing needs to, needs to be to come to that understanding that it was not, it was not God. I mentioned that again, you know, that that was not God. My husband often says that if Jesus had been the one to come on the shores of America, those many hundreds of years, it would look so different. Hmm. How would it look different, Linda? The message of Jesus, you know, it, the New Testament calls it the gospel, right? The good news. And what is this good news? That we would understand the love of God. You know, that this everlasting love that God has for us. And the message that, message that Jesus came. Jesus came into our humanity to bring this love of God to our human level and in the flesh, you know, to bring us that message. And the need for redemption, to be redeemed the redemption message. The redemption message is to bring something back to life that was dead. Mm. And in my journey, in my journey with Jesus, to follow Jesus, that theme of redemption, not only in my eternally, like in my spirit, but also in my body, in my emotional being. That has been hopeful for me. That God can bring back to life what was dead in me, emotionally. Because another impact of trauma, abuse, all kinds of abuse is emotional shutdown. And many of my... Aboriginal people live 
in that way, emotionally. So for me, not only is it like uh, in terms of eternity, yes, I know that I am redeemed. I have been redeemed to God, to my savior eternally. But also here, there is that hope. Thank you for sharing that, Linda. I want to ask you then about your work with your husband, Rick. I actually don't know much at all about what you do, but I do know you've hinted at this work of counseling and of reconciliation. Can you speak to, to the work that you do? Mm-hmm. My husband, Rick, and I have been in the ministry for the last 20 years. And we do counseling and we do teaching on topics that my Aboriginal people struggle with. There'd be like um, trauma, grief, traumatic losses, abuse, all kinds of abuse. We teach on those topics and then we counsel. And where are you going to do this work? We've been doing that for the last 20 years. And before COVID, we traveled. We traveled to many places, to communities, northern communities in northern Ontario in my tribal area. Get invited to go teaching. We, go and we get invited to, to go counsel by different um, organizations or churches or schools. And that's basically what we've been doing the last 20 years. What programs specifically, uh, like what other programs specifically do you run that help bring healing to Indigenous peoples in Canada? Okay, so one of the things that we've been doing is uh, a healing circle. It's called, we've called it Inanimon. Inanimon is a word in my tribe, which means how we are feeling in our hearts. And we, uh, we've found that it is the heart we've learned and we've experienced. You know, any time trauma and pain has happened to us, and uh, it's the heart, the spirit of who we are that, that gets affected. So we wanted to use a word that would address that. So a healing circle uh, called the Inanimon. We've been doing that for the last, yeah, it's since we first started. So the last 20 years. Hmm. And we've done it mostly with churches. Different churches will invite us to... Um, do that learning centers we get invited to come and do that kind of healing training or healing with their with their people in this circle in this healing circle we there's it has a twofold approach a teaching time and then we break into sharing groups and it's in the sharing groups then that 
people are given space or provided space to share their story of their what they choose to share. And uh, many times it's in those sharing circles that people get to share about their own trauma. Many times, for the first time for many people, one of the things that we've learned again in our work with trauma is uh, once we begin to name, put words into what's happened to us as Aboriginal people, healing can begin. There's this lawyer that worked with my people group in Northern Ontario for many years, and he wrote a book. And uh, one of the things he wondered about as he would travel to these isolated Northern communities year after year, and same issues, and uh, began to wonder, what is it? Why do these my people thinking and talking about my people, why do they struggle in this way? You know, and one of the things he began to find out was that that as a people group that we've experienced trauma collectively. And because right across Canada, we we were showing the same expressions of that unresolved trauma. Wow. And so and so he wondered what is this? And so that's when he came to learn about the residential schools. Residential schools that took place over a span of 100 years. Last one was closed in the 1990s. I'm not sure exactly which year. I'm not sure. If... That's crazy. Mhm. And during that time about 170,000 of our children went through the system. And many of those 170,000 children went through abuse, all kinds of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual. And one of the uh, powerful impacts of sexual abuse is to silence the victim. Silence the victim because there's so much shame in what's happened. And so we as a nation of Aboriginal people were silenced for decades. And that's one of the things this lawyer, that's one of the things he talks about. And that's one of the things he began to learn. This is the intergenerational trauma that he's seeing in the communities from those experiences. That go back like a generation or two generations, three generations, and some families. Doesn't it make you mad, Linda? Like I just hear you say that. That's not even something I've lived through, but just can't imagine. Some just the feeling for those who've lived through this generation through generation. What what is the feeling today in 2021 in the Indigenous populations in Canada? Are people still very angry? Are they hurt? Is there any healing that's taken place? How, how do we begin to even talk about healing when you said generations of trauma? Mm-hmm. It seems hopeless at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does seem that way. 
and it can feel that way at times. You asked me how I'm feeling about it. And I first learned to begin to understand about the impact of colonization in my people when I was going to college and I was doing my BA in social sciences. And I had to take sociology for a few years in that program that I was in. And it was in that class and in those classes in that course of sociology one and two and I in social psychology. Uh, I began to understand about the impact of colonization on minorities by the main society, the impact of that. And before that, I did not understand the impact of repression that I lived with because it had become normal. It was normal to me to be, to live as an oppressed uh, minority. And so it was through my being in college that I began to understand those things and, and what all that meant. And that's when I became angry. I began to feel so much anger and what happened to us and how much we've lost and how we are made to feel unwelcome in our own land and that we don't even have a land in our own continent. That made me angry. And so it was, I had to come to terms that over that next few years, that this is the reality that I live in, but what is it that I can do to rise above it? To not allow the oppression to keep me small. What is it that I can do? And again, it was learning, understanding my history as an Aboriginal people group and beginning to be part of sharing my story like I am doing right now. Mm-hmm. And if one person can listen and understand, I have done my part. That's beautifully said. So we talk about this word of reconciliation and we know it's near to the heart of God, but reconciliation is no small task. And we see that, I guess, the greatest example in Jesus and his sacrifice. But um, what, what have you begun to learn about reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples here in Canada? And what part do you believe the church, if, if at all, has to play in supporting, you know, partnering, walking alongside individuals and communities in this healing? 
Mm -hmm. I think the church can have a big part in it. The church can become a big part in the reconciliation process with the uh, Aboriginal people. And, and again, I think to begin small. Rick and I work with different church groups that want to help my people from different areas. But one of the things that I always teach to or share with these groups is that you have to build connections first with the, the people, build connections, build relationships with the Aboriginal people, begin to build trust with my people because the history of church has always been like to impose their ideas on us and position and aggressive. That's our experience of church. Right. What history. And it's done a lot of damage. And uh, so we need to change that. And then, and for me, it begins with connecting and relationships, befriending. Uh, my husband, Rick, who is not native, <laughs> I should say, should mention that, often says that if every non-Aboriginal person would befriend an Aboriginal person, the face of our society would look different. Hmm. So connecting. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Can I just ask though, practically speaking, I think people are going to listen to this and say, they're going to be nodding their heads, but then saying, okay, but like, I don't know anyone who's from these communities, right? That, that mm -hmm. might be a common response or people, many people genuinely may want to, to take part, to be a friend to one person, to listen, to sit. But what would you say if they feel like they don't even know anyone from an indigenous uh, people group? Mm -hmm. I think to be, just to have an open mind that, or to be curious about the history of our country, because the history of our country is one of the main founding factors of our of this country is the colonization of the native people, Aboriginal people. And what all that means, you know, and to be open to accept the native people, even if it's through the news that, you know, most of the time, the news represents any time there's a conflict 
with the uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities or the Aboriginal people protesting against the government. Those are many times the only maybe awareness or exposure or awareness that- Right, the negative news. Mm-hmm. And, but there's many Aboriginal people that will never make it to the news who are just amazing people. Can I ask you a bit of a, you may have to put on your creative hat for a second, but if, you know, imagine you were given a camera, you were, you were a news reporter and you brought your camera around some of the communities, some of your people. What, what are some of the good news stories? What are some of the beautiful things that people would see that bring honor mm-hmm. to your people? Mm-hmm. I think I would talk about people like my mom. <laughs> She's 81 years old. She turned 81. She still does amazing leather work. She sells it right like to many places. And it's it's a it's a tradition that we have in our culture that you know she just lives that out in a beautiful way and i would probably take uh, you guys to another elder in the community who is uh smoking their fish for their meal the next day for the family smoking it the traditionally the traditional way and she has done it for years she sets her own fishnet about it she'll never make it to the news this person Hmm. uh maybe i would take you to go meet uh, a great leader in one of these isolated communities with about 2,500 Aboriginal people living. They're isolated. And he's an amazing leader uh, on how he leads. And maybe we would go visit him and see how his life and his community is like. And maybe I would take you to a friend of mine who started an organi- a mission organization uh, that emphasizes on teaching about the history of our people, like uh, the hist- how the church has uh, walked with us, you know, uh, and how we can come to a good place in spite of what we've gone through. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds pretty amazing. I I would love to to maybe one day join you guys on that journey. And and I just wonder, yeah, how how helpful would that be? It's it's not that we're ignoring it's not that you're saying to ignore the pain and the suffering and the the challenges because those need to be addressed, but at the same time, this idea of honoring the peoples and and to um, to to listen to people's stories and to see joy and mm-hmm. children laughing and to hear mm-hmm. stories told and see traditions and I'm sure new lessons brought together, um, you know those the, these things help paint a more human picture 
Mm-hmm. And if I if I could say even as a Christian, you know, if we believe that everyone is made in the eyes of the Creator of God, that everyone is as a child of God in that sense, that uh, to that everyone is, re- is is worthy of sorry in light of that everyone is is worthy of dignity and respect because mm-hmm. they're God's child. Just to to I guess even you're doing it. I'm just thinking it. <laughs> but how do we? you know, do that where we allow ourselves to sit and listen and learn from people's stories and be reminded that the presence of God really has been there all along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? You're asking. Yeah. I'm just pondering this truthfully. And I think people listening in again are pondering these same things. I think I mentioned, you know, to, to be, open to want to learn about the people of this country, the Aboriginal people of this country and to be curious. And I know it all sounds simple, but to befriend, to befriend an Aboriginal person. I know it all sounds so simple, but it needs to start somewhere individually. You know, right. how you uh, see us, see the Aboriginal people, hmm. be curious, be interested. Thank you, Linda. We're almost done here. I just wanted to ask again, more on a personal level when do you feel closest? to God, to Jesus? For me personally, one of the things I've been learning these past years is learn to know that he is with me. And I mentioned this in the beginning when I'm in in the place of darkness, struggle, and I'm struggling, when I have anxiety, when I'm in the place of darkness, he is with me. And that is enough. That is enough. Hmm. Linda, I spend a lot of time working with youth here in Toronto, and I'm sure that you work with many youth and families as well and come across them in your journey. And I, I really do believe in the importance of passing down wisdom from generation to generation mm-hmm. for, for any youth that might be listening to this podcast today. What is one thing that you would like them to know about Jesus? And as that intersects with some of your story. To know that no matter where you are at today, no matter what you are going through today, that you are not alone, that Jesus is with you. You know, that promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you still stands today. That promise was given 
verse given to us that is recorded is in Deuteronomy. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's repeated again in Hebrews in the New Testament. I will never leave you and forsake you. And another 2,000 years later that, you know, that promise is still true to us today. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. Sometimes what we are going through in the present, you know, whether we're struggling with addictions, we're struggling with uh, grief, struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression, all those life experiences will make us feel alone. It's at those times we need to intentionally remind ourselves, no, we are not. Hmm. Jesus is with us. That's beautifully said, Linda. Thank you. For those that might be interested in learning more about the work that yourself and your husband, Rick, are doing, mm-hmm. um, and, and I believe you guys even raised financial support to help pay some of your salary to mm-hmm. continue this important work. How, how can people get in touch if their heart has been moved today to consider, um, you know, either making a donation or just learning more about the work that you do? Like you said, we raised our own support. We go under uh, MSC, Missionary Service Canada. People that want to donate to our work, they can donate to that organization. We're independent missionaries, but MSC then does the financial part for us. So that's where people could check into. Will they specifically find you on on a website there? Yes, there's about... There's over 300 missionaries in, in, that, in, in that website. And uh, Rick and I are one of the few Canadian missionaries. So someone would have, you would have to go to the Canada section for us because there's many of us in that. I'll, I'll post the information for that in the show notes so that people can click on that and, and be directed to the website as well. Can you say the name one more time of the of the organization? Missionary Service of Canada. Okay, Missionary Service of Canada. Well, Linda, I, I want to honor you and and th- thank you for sharing so much of your story today and speaking truthfully and beautifully from your heart from what God has done and taught you. And um, I I hope the people listening will be I know they will be moved and inspired and encouraged by your story mm-hmm. and, and i just want to thank you for your time today thank you thank you andrew thank you for taking an interest and in, uh in my people and uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share 